Hey, listen, we are wrapping up the same page series tonight. Today, we're going to just jump into uh, the final part of this. So wherever you're joining us from, so glad you're here. Family here, thank you for being a part of this. Uh, it's been a long journey. Talking about relationships, making yourself feel bad for this many weeks in a row is kind of tough. So you made it. Proud of you guys. Well done. Uh, but we are wrapping it up. And so Pastor Cam, he said, hey, I want you to talk about marriage. And I was like, all right, well, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, okay, I want you to talk about why it can be so great and so hard. I was like, well, that, that's it, right? You just say that and we're good. So I'm going to pray. and we're, No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to keep going here. But so I, I asked my wife. I was like, Lindsay, that's my wife's name. I said, why is being married so hard? So I thought about that question after I asked it, though. You know what I mean? Because you can immediately go a hundred different directions. And I was like, wow, this could go really poorly for me. Um, but then I was reminded, you know, why my wife is so amazing. She said, well, that's easy. I was like, well, I wish you'd share with the rest of us. And so here's what she said. She said, it's hard because for your marriage to work best, you have to think of what's best for the other person and then just live that way every day. And then I was like, well, why am I preaching this? You know, she, she knows. What, but here, here, it's easy to say, right? It's easy to say like, yes, I'm just going to live for what's best for the other person constantly. But then to actually walk that out is a totally different experience, to actually live and practice that reality is near impossible if you're like me. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look into a passage that has marked my life. So if you've got a Bible, open it to Philippians 2. If you do not have a Bible, uh, no worries. We're going to put some passages on the screens uh, for you. But this passage actually holds in it. Listen to this. It holds the key to having a great marriage. Now, just so you don't think I'm exaggerating... This actually will change your marriage. If you follow the principle that shows up in Philippians 2, it will actually change everything in your marriage or any relationship for that matter. And so we're going to camp out in Philippians 2. I love this passage, but here's the reality. It's Paul's writing to, he's the author, he's writing to this group of believers in Philippi. And he says, listen, I want this body of believers to have an incredible relationship. I want you to grow in your ability to know and be united with one another. And so what I'm doing, this passage is not even written to married couples. This is written to people just in the church. But I'm thinking and I'm following, if we follow this out in our marriages, it could actually change everything for us. So Philippians 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, which of course there would be, that's the, that's the point. He's saying, if, you're in the, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you've been baptized as this declaration that I am now in the family of God. I'm a son or I'm a daughter in his house and my aim and my mission in life is to live how Jesus would live, speak how Jesus would speak, act, how Jesus would, he would act. If that is your reality as part of the church, then of course you would have encouragement in Christ. He's speaking to this group of people and he says, any of you feeling this? And everybody's going like, yeah, I'm all, I'm all in the boat. And he says, any comfort from love? Of course there's comfort from love. 
Here's a group of people who have been kicked out of their own families and now they've found a family in the church. Here is a group of people who have found something eternally significant in the church which was lacking in our world. So, of course, there is comfort in love as part of the church. He says, any participation in the spirit? And everybody's just going, this is the best part. This is the best part. That by being in Christ, we are now living day to day in participation with the Spirit. He's speaking, and we're listening, and then we're responding. He's guiding us. He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't go there anymore. And we're going, okay, not going there anymore. And so we're following the participation of the Spirit. Of course, we're experiencing this. This is what Jesus went away for so that the church would have the Spirit of God. And so everybody's going, yes, uh, of course I'm experiencing encouragement in Christ. I'm experiencing love of the body. I'm experiencing participation of the spirit. I'm experiencing affection and sympathy. Then he says this. So if you're experiencing that, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's like if I go to my kids. I got, I got four kids. You guys see pictures of them all the time. And so now that I'm talking, you're just going to get too much of us, okay? But here's the deal. We got four kids. It's like I sat down at our table with our kids and I said, hey, isn't it, isn't it awesome being a family together? Like, isn't this great? Like, mom works so hard to make sure that we have everything that we need. Doesn't it feel great to feel loved as part of this family and feel like we're a part of something really special because we have each other and because we love each other don't you feel like you can go out in the world and accomplish anything don't you feel those things as part of the family if you do as a family as we feel that then there's something we can all do individually that can make this even better they can take the relationship we have and turn it into something great that's the conversation Paul is having with the church He's saying, aren't you experiencing these things as part of the family? Okay, well, since you're experiencing that as a family, there's something you can do as an individual that you can commit to, to take your relationship from something that is simply good and turn it into something that is actually amazing. All right? This principle that he talks about, it creates unity. It moves people to the same page. It, it forces us to be on a different place altogether. In fact... If you ignore this principle that he's about to talk about, he's going to tell you right now what is most important. And if you ignore it, it will actually create dysfunction within you and it will actually divide your relationships. So I think it's really important that we pay attention to what he says. Look at verse 3. You ready for this? This changes every relationship. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, everybody go, oh. But in, <laughs> thank you for playing along because it was great. Um, but, but in humility, like if you're, if you're the kind of person that like marks up your Bible, I am, I, I just like, I learn by marking this up. Circle the word, underline the word, put a star by. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Whew. Oh, man. Okay, this is, this is hard. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is exactly what my Lindsay was saying 
When she said, why? When I asked her, I was like, why is it so hard being married? I luckily didn't say, why is it so hard being married to me? But just in general, why is marriage so difficult? She said, because the best thing for your marriage or any relationship is that you do what is best for the other person. This makes it, this makes my mind immediately go in one of two places. You ready for this? I got two points for you right now. First off, the worst thing for your marriage is you. This, this is the encouraging part of, of the message. But the, the worst thing, the potentially the absolute worst factor in your marriage could be you. And so let me just walk you through this. Think of how crazy this is. We say we have two people, all right? We got a guy and a girl who spend their lives devoting themselves to making much of themselves, who wake up every day and look in the mirror at themselves, and they spend every moment thinking, what is best for me? And then we take these two people, and we put them in a covenant called marriage that God created, and we say that you two self-obsessed, self-focused people are now supposed to love each other till death does you part. And for some people, that comes a lot faster because they're now conflicting with you're in my world now. So, so think about how crazy this reality is. You spend your entire life devoting yourself to yourself. And now one day somebody says, you're supposed to set, set your mind on someone else. So potentially, the worst thing for your relationships, the worst thing for your marriage potentially is you, your ego, your interests, your desires, your dreams, yes, even your sin, right? Especially as it conflicts with the ego and the desires and the dreams and sin of your spouse. Look at what he says. Ready? Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let's think about what these words mean. Selfish ambition. Here's the idea. It's the spirit of rivalry. It's the spirit of like, it, it, how, do, how many of you met these people that they're like, they always have to win. How many of you are those people? I always have to win. Where are we going to dinner? We're going to Cracker Barrel. I don't know if that's, you don't, that's not a win. Okay, so, but you're, this, this person, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to win. I am right. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what we do. I'm the kind of person. So this, this selfish ambition, it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. I will be right. I will win. Do you know people like that? Are you people? Okay. Here's the second part. Conceit. Here's how one commentary described it. A person then who is motivated by a kenodoxia, ready? Empty conceit. It's a compound phrase. It's an empty conceit. It's this picture. It's puffed up, but you realize there's no substance to it. So this person who is assertively, even arrogantly claims to have the right doxa opinion... Any opinionated people out there? Okay. They have the right doxa, but who is in fact in error? Kinos, meaning it's empty. They have no grounds for their argument. Here's the deal. Yet the term is more of a moral connotation. It refers to a person who's conceited without reason, deluded, ambitious for his own reputation, challenging others to rivalry, himself jealous 
of others. Here's what he's saying. If you're in relationship with someone like this, that always has to win, or someone who is arrogantly argumentative, but having no real reason or ground, like we're trying to have a conversation, but it doesn't seem like there's any reason that we don't have a reasonable conversation, okay? If you have those two things, it is virtually impossible to create unity. It's virtually impossible to be on the same page because, potentially, the worst thing for your marriage is you. Okay, but here's the other part. Everybody take a breath. The best thing for your marriage is you. You're like, now I'm just confused. The best thing, listen, potentially, the best thing in your marriage is you. Listen, you can't outsource certain things in your marriage. You can't expect someone else to step in for you as a husband or father. You can't expect someone else to provide certain things as a wife or a mother. You are the best thing for your marriage. Let me give you an example. By design, you are the only legitimate source of intimacy for your spouse. Listen to me. You are the only legitimate source of intimacy for your spouse. Spouse, that includes sexual intimacy, which cannot possibly be fulfilled or sought after through a screen or a stranger. Do you understand that? That's the lie, that intimacy, there's a, there's a back road to it. There's a cheaper way to it. There's an easy, less risky version of it, and it's a lie, and it's never going to attain the promises that it makes. Because in marriage, you are the only legitimate source of intimacy for your spouse. Listen, guys, if you're married and you're like, you know what, we're going to start doing Bible studies. I'm going to give you a chapter to start on. 1 Corinthians 7, all right? Let me just read for you 7 verses 3 and 4. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. Can I get an amen? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And the wife, now I'll get an amen on this one. The wife should fulfill her husband's needs. There we go. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Here's what it's saying. When I got married, I said my wife has authority over my body and she has given herself to me, it is part of my responsibilities to be the source or the legitimate source of intimacy for her. There is no one else. There is nothing else that can step in that place. So what is it saying in this passage? You are the only legitimate source of intimacy for your spouse. But intimacy is more than sex, right? Because intimacy is knowing deeply, being truly and deeply known, all right? So that's why in Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, it's the responsibility of the husband to love his wife. That is, she needs, that is what she needs from you. Listen, you are the primary source of love for her. She can have great relationships, right? And she can come from a great family and experience love from the family. She can experience love from friends. But nobody can provide the love that her husband needs or that she needs from her husband. You are the best Choice, the best source of love for her in your marriage. In the same way, Paul says to ladies, listen, you have the responsibility 
of respecting your husbands. He can bust it in the workplace all day long and get accolades from his boss. He can get pat on the back from his peers. He can look at his subordinates and they can say, you're an amazing leader. And they can give him all this respect. But when he walks home and he's disrespected, there is a gaping hole in him because you are the only one who can provide that respect in the marriage for him. It's by design. It doesn't change. You are the best thing for your marriage. So the question is this. How do we move from the worst thing for our marriage to the best thing for our marriage? How do we, how do we make that journey? How do we take that trip? Here's how Paul would answer that question. He would say, choose humility. He'd say, choose humility. Look at what he says. In verse 3, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Even right now, close your eyes and picture the relationships you're in, the, the roommate you have, the, the siblings in your life, the spouse in your life, the family members, the mother-in-law, whatever it is. Picture these relationships. And now picture yourself seeing them more significant than yourself. Telling yourself, it is more important that I live for what is best for them than that I feel like what is best for me. Can you even imagine that right now? Can you even imagine waking up thinking, I'm living for the best of another person because I'm counting them as more significant than myself. Verse 4, look what it says. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others by Paul's definition of humility it's precisely the opposite of what we just talked about humility says in choosing humility it means helping others win instead of needing to always win it means giving up your right to always share your opinion even if your opinion is right it's giving up the right to share that opinion, to do those things. And because it is giving of yourself, humility says, I'm going to fight for the relationship first. I'm going to fight for the relationship before fighting to be right. To be honest, this is why choosing humility, this is why marriage is so difficult because it feels like such a difficult thing. Here's, here's how I, I picture this, okay? So in, in relationship, here's... Guy, girl, they're happy, so engaged. That's the phase they're in right now. But they're in relationship, okay? But immediately they start asking each other questions. Or not each other, just themselves. They, she starts going like, man, I thought like once we got married, he would change that. Or he starts thinking things like, man, I was really hoping she would cook like my mom. Or she's thinking like, man, he really gained a lot of weight. What can I do now? Or she, he's thinking, okay, right? We wouldn't confess that in front of people, but... We all have these expectations and then we all have these questions like, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to grow together? How is this marriage supposed to be great? And we're both, both asking this question. But here's what Paul would say. Paul would say, you have the wrong mindset. You need a new mind. That's where we go to this right here. Boom. Okay. So he's saying in this passage, and we're going to look at it. He's saying the best thing for one another is to have the mind of Christ. The, in fact, the more you grow 
in the mind of Christ. The closer you get to taking on his mind in you, it is the best thing for your marriage. And so here's where he goes. Look at verse 5. Here's what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally the, the words you're saying, take the mind of Christ, put it in you. That's what he's saying. But listen, I, we're talking a lot about marriage and everything right now. I want you to hear just what this passage is saying because this passage is phenomenal. Like when you, when you thumb through the New Testament or you thumb through any kind of literature, what you will find is that this kind of writing about our God has no equal, okay? Listen to what Paul says. Here's what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, very essence, very nature, Jesus is God. You get that? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't chase after what was his right, but he gave it up. There is no God like that. There, there is nothing else like him. This passage shows us this. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God of the universe who speaks in creation shows up, humbled himself and became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is, if this is going to work, you need to take the mind of our God and put it in you. You need to walk day to day with, with his mind. So the question is, how do you take on the mind of Jesus? Well, how do you take on the mind of anybody else? Right? For those of you who have been married for more than five years, you're thinking differently now. You know, those of you who grew up with your siblings, you're, you're constantly you're doing the same things. You're thinking the same way. You just, so you, by spending time together, by seeking them, by listening, you're, you could take on the mind of Christ. I remember, so my grandfather, um, Grandpa O, he was this amazing man, larger than life kind of guy. He was the guy who was so focused on his call and mission in life that people would constantly try to invite him into different roles and greater roles. And he would say, that is not who I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm called to. This is. So I, he passed away when I was very young. But I got to know him well enough to know that he was amazing. But there's part of me that keeps going, I wish I knew him. And so... Now, whenever I hear some of the family stories going on, I lean in and I'm like, uh, so tell me more about that story. Tell me what he did here. Tell me how this worked. Or sometimes I'll hear about a book or an author that he would read. And so I'll start reading this author and read these books because I'm like, I want to know how he thought. Or sometimes I'll see his old Bible and I'll just thumb through it and look for any passages where he made notes in the margin because I want to know how he was thinking 
So to take on his mind, I would read what he wrote. The same thing applies in taking on the mind of Christ. You read what he wrote and you begin to consume it. So you read scripture daily. It's like food. You eat every day, right? You eat three times a day. Some of us eat a lot more than that. So listen, reading scripture is like eating. You you consume this and it sustains you. But you also do more than that. You pray continually. Prayer is like breathing. You don't stop breathing, right? You, You keep it going. It's what sustains your spirit. And so we do these practices. They're called spiritual disciplines of reading in prayer so that we would know the mind of Christ. So we're walking through the day going, how would you deal with this child? How would you deal with this situation? How would you walk through these things? Because you need to take on his mindset. So here's a question. How do we begin to choose humility by taking on the mind of Christ? What we're going to do is we're going to do a little test, okay? So we're going to do an easy one and a hard one. I'm going to give you an example One easy example, one hard example. First off, we'll start with an easy one. How do we start having the mind of Christ? Let's start with something simple like um, picking up after yourself. Okay? How many of you are naturally messy people? Just show of hands real quick. Okay. How many of you are sitting next to the person who is a naturally messy person? Raise your hand on their behalf. Okay. Messy people don't realize they're messy. That was a bad question. They're like, I don't know. I'm a pretty clean person. The person beside you's like got a mask on. No, you're not. Okay. So, so someone simple, simple like picking up after yourself. I remember a story Andy Stanley told. He walked upstairs to his boys' room, and it was a disaster. And he said, I want you to call your mom and ask her to come pick this up. And he's like, no, I'm just going to pick it. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want you to call your mother and ask her to come pick up your stuff. And he's like, no, I'll just, listen, I'll just clean my room. And he said, Call your mom, tell her to come up here and pick up your stuff. Because when you leave a mess, you leave it for someone else. You see, the problem with our ego is that we think our actions don't impact other people. But humility constantly says, how does this impact somebody else? How will this impact somebody else? So you you go, here's the problem. We tend to leave a mess. But how do we start taking on the mind of Christ? So you look through Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 7, 12. Here's what it says. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying do to others what they have done to you. No, it's not saying that. Do to others what you hope they will reciprocate. You know, like I'll do this if you do this. No, it's not saying that. It's saying simply, you live in such a way that you wish others would live. Regardless if they will ever live that way. Because the mind of Christ says I'm going to live for what is best for the other. All right. That was the easy one. You ready to get hard? Let's get hard. Here we go. How many of you have ever had imaginary conversations in your head about another person who did something or said something that hurt you or made you mad? I know I'm like one of three here, okay? Yeah, half of us are like, oh my goodness. Okay, so you've had these imaginary conversations in your head. In that conversation, here's what happens. They have become the enemy, right? Your sister-in-law has become the enemy, 
And so you're arguing with this person and you're trying to prove them wrong. But here's the reality. You're the only one in the conversation. So what do you do? You win every time, right? <laughs> so, so now you realize the mind of Christ is that of a servant, sacrificial. He's emptying himself. And you go, my mind is different. I need to take his mind and put it in me. So you look to the word. Here's what the word says. Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a different mindset. Earlier in this chapter, here's what it says, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you did something and you need to apologize, not that something, but you think there might be an issue between you, stop, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What does the mind of Christ look like? What does humility look like? Here's what it means. Choosing humility means the argument against that person that's happening in your head needs to turn into a prayer for that person. How many of you have done that? You're arguing, you're arguing, you're arguing, and the Spirit says, this isn't going to help. So the argument against them turns into a prayer for them. Okay? Here's how choosing humility also means that you... Take the first step towards reconciliation regardless of who's wrong. You take the first step of reconciliation regardless of who's wrong. How many of us in our mind wait? Well, I'm just waiting for them to apologize. I'm just waiting for them to tell me they're sorry. I'm just waiting for them to show up. That's the way of the world, and it won't work in relationships. How many of you have done this in our marriages? We sit in different corners of the house going, I'm just waiting on them. They'll get their act together. And here we sit, divided, broken. But if you choose humility and choose to take on the mind of Christ, it creates unity it puts you on the same page. So listen, we, we have to. If we're going to have an incredible marriage or incredible relationship, we have to, in humility, take on the mind of Christ. Choosing humility is so difficult, but at times it means, it feels like it's the thing that we can't do. It's the thing that we won't do. Oswald Chambers said it this way. In my utmost for his highest, which is an amazing Devotional, here's what he says. The true mark of the saint is that he will waive his own rights and obey the Lord. He'll waive his own rights, just like Jesus did. He gave up his right, and he obeyed. So here's the last question. You ready? Why, if it is so hard, if it's so complicated, if it, if it feels impossible, why... Is it worth, humble, worth humbling ourselves like Jesus? Why is it worth it? Look at what happens next in the passage. Guys, this is where it all changes. Verse 9. Jesus has emptied himself of every right as God. He has become obedient as a servant. He has sacrificed his position. He has become obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
And this is what happens. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, he is the most incredible picture of self-sacrificing love through humility. This is the fact, this is why we can actually trust him. But why is choosing humility so important? It's because when you choose humility, God shows up for you. God lifts you up. God takes it on himself. He sets you as a priority to reward you for your humility. That's the whole point. Look, this principle is true for Jesus and it's true for us. James 4, 6 says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Heads up. If you are proud in your relationships, if your pride and your ego is driving you, you're going to wake up one day realizing you are opposing God. And let me say this. Whoever opposes God loses. You're not going to be different. God opposes the proud, but listen to what happens. God gives grace to the humble. Here's the point. When you choose to humble yourself, you open up the door for God to actually fight for you. When you choose to humble yourself in your marriage, even if they don't, even if it's one-sided, even if it's just you and they're on a different page, You've now given God the opportunity to step in and set it as his priority to lift you up and fight on your behalf. That's why we humble ourselves. Can you imagine what this would be like? Just for a minute, just imagine what it would be like if you and your spouse woke up every day thinking, how can I live for what is best for them, how can I set them on a different place? How can I lift them up in my mind? How can I set my interests aside? I'm longing to set all of my interests, all of my desires, everything of myself, set it to the side so that I can lift them up and she can be the most amazing woman in my world. Or you think to him and I'm going to lift him up so he can be the most amazing husband in the world. What if that was our marriages? What if that was our relationships, you and a roommate living, humbling yourself, saying, God, be the center of this. God, be the one who lifts this up. God, be the one who exalts this and changes this for the better. There is no version of a broken marriage God's way. If you humble yourself, if you set them up as significant, if you do it the way he says, he fights for you. Do you get that? It's possible. It's hard, yeah. But it's possible through Jesus. So let's dream a little bit bigger for our marriages. Humble ourselves by taking on the mind of Christ. And open up the door for him to fight for your relationships, fight for your marriage. And let's walk into what he has for us. All right? Let me pray. Here we go. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, Jesus.
So many of us right now. We're clinging to the image of what could be and frankly are, can be disappointed because it seems like a dream too far. It seems like a, a journey that's impossible. It seems like it's just not going to happen. And so we want to come to you and ask that you would teach us. Teach us through your spirit how to walk in humility, how to take on your mind. Teach us through your word. Teach us through the counsel of one another how to live in such a way that we set up others as more significant than ourselves. We hold the interests of others above our own in humility, living like the mind of Christ. Show us how to take that step. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.